The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Amen. So Genesis 35 will be our text. And what I want to do is consider the narrative for the first half of this morning's sermon and then press you in two specific ways of application as we think on the topic of life in light of eternity this morning. Life in light of eternity. Let's uh, read the text from Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the entire section together, and then I'm going to go back and provide some commentary. God said to Jacob, Get up, go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob and his family and all who were with him, I'm sorry, so Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel and I'll build an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. Then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and their earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. And when they set out, a terror from God came over all the cities around them, and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So Jacob and all who were with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. And Jacob built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother and Deborah. The one who had nursed and raised Rebekah died and was buried in the oak south of Bethel. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again, and he returned from Padan Aran, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations, will come from you, and kings will descend from you. And I will give to you the land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, and I will give the land to your future descendants. And then God withdrew from him at the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a marker at that place where he had spoken to him, a stone marker, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he anointed it with oil. And Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Now, We are not at the end of Jacob's story yet. In fact, the story will not conclude many chapters over the passage that Brandon read this morning. Jacob is gathered to his fathers as the narrator records. The skip of the stone from where we were last week when Jacob is wrestling with God and this new name is given takes us across the reconciliation with Esau, God's miraculous providence and restoring these brothers who are estranged because of sin. And then a really weird chapter in chapter 34, the sexual sin and immorality of the people. I'll admit, as the preacher this morning, we are cherry-picking a bit of the passages here, considering specifically God's work in the world as it's demonstrated through these greats. But as such, we're skipping some text that uh, require greater consideration for you, chapter 34 being an example of this. However, lest we get off track from the overarching biblical narrative to say, as you'll see throughout the Old Testament, there are these chapters that are, that are written that, that really just demonstrate one simple fact. The sin from Adam is continuing to spread, and it's continuing to get more grotesque. 
there's a sense in which the narrative is laced with these God's faithfulness is the overarching thesis. And then kind of undergirding, we have these interspersed snippets that, that just highlight the continued devolution of human society as a result of sin. But we're close to the end of Jacob's story here. And if you look in your Bibles and just consider the main headers of your text, consider in verse 16, we see Rachel's death. Skip over to verse 27. Your header probably says Isaac's death there. Interspersed between these death scenes are Israel's sons and then Esau's family. And in chapter 36, we get a host of names that you or I can't pronounce with descriptions that they lived for a certain length of time, had some children, and then they died. This common pattern of movement throughout the Bible helps us see something that's really critical to observe. It's easy to get lost in the weeds of the story in the book of Genesis and, in fact, all the Old Testament. If you were to read the Old Testament in one sitting, which none of us are going to do, but if you were to, you would notice the patterns that are hard to see with any momentary consideration. But this pattern, characters that appear on the screen of God's work in the world for a brief snippet and then are gone, would stand out to you time and time again. We've seen, through our consideration of faith and frailty, characters like Abraham, the great. And though we have chapters of consideration of Abraham's life, the focus of these stories is really on the reiteration of God's covenant promises to Abraham. And the scene, the story really isn't about him much at all. In fact, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, we have this scene played out over and over again where God's just saying, here's who I am and here's what I'm going to do. And then Abraham leaves the screen. Isaac, we have almost nothing about him. Other than the sacrifice scene and him digging some wells, he is a passing character on the screen of human history. Jacob, as we've seen, we have, we have more scenes from his life more than any other, but very quickly, at the end of just a few chapters, he's going to leave the screen of human history, and and Joseph is going to appear. The latter third of the book of Genesis is going to focus on Joseph's life and the spread of these promises to the nations. Now, certainly, these three greats that we've considered, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're going to live on, at least in name, Their name is going to be etched in the history of the people of God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But their human lives are short blips on the radar screen of human history. This is perhaps most vividly seen in Genesis chapter 5. Just flip back a few chapters with me. Genesis chapter 5. You're reading through the Old Testament, you get out of the stories that you're familiar with, the murder of Cain and Abel, and then you get to Genesis 5, and you're like, man, this is why I don't read the Bible much, because this is really confusing. Why do we have a whole chapter that's doing nothing but establishing this generational line from Adam down through his descendants? 
gives you a snippet of the repeat performance that we're seeing in Genesis 35 and following. I'll just give you a brief snippet of that, beginning in verse 3. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and he named him Seth. And Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Abraham's life lasted 930 years, and then he died. Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years. Then he died. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. And Enosh lived 815 years after he fathered Kenan. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enosh's life lasted 905 years. And then he died. Now, if you trace it, I stopped there because that's the end of the names that I could pronounce appropriately in front of a group this large. So I'm going to cut off there. But if you were continuing to read the story, you're just going to see harder names to pronounce, a bit shorter lives, and then the same refrain after each one of them. And then he died. Then he died. Then he died. We, being good Bible readers, know that the repeated emphases of words or phrases help us cue in to the author's purpose not merely of this chapter, but I would argue throughout the book of Genesis, that he, he died. These less than glamorous images of the end of even the greats of human history. In fact, later biblical authors are going to comment on this theme, the he died refrain, using pictures that, depending on how you got up this morning and how your coffee settled on you, might make you even more depressed. Here's the way James writes of this life in James 4, 13 and 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. You are but a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Or here's how the psalmist, this is a get you up verse right here. Here's how the psalmist recounts the same idea. For as man... His days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. Like the spring flowers that appear for a moment, the storm comes this afternoon and blows that new flower off, and it's gone. Nobody remembers it anymore. This is our life. It may be helpful, I'm not an artist, but just doodling in sermon notes this week to picture human history, the story of Genesis, as a timeline, as an arrow with a clear beginning, extending into eternity, the timeline of human history. And on this timeline of human history, we encounter various characters, various actors in the biblical story. I mentioned just a couple here, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in my beautiful artistic rendering, uh, the arrows deep moving off of the timeline of human history really do capture the essence of this theme for me. It's not like they're a dot that was there, and then, but like they detour. Like they just go off, and then they're, they're gone. And things are just rocking on forward without them. They exit the highway of human history, and though their names may stand through the coming generations, their lives are a short blip. Our passage this morning, though, provides us some hope as we live in the line of Adam. 
those whose lives are incredibly short, and those who can't seem to grasp at eternity. Consider Genesis 35, beginning in verse 10. How does God speak to this one who will soon be gathered to his fathers? What are the words that he tells him as Jacob will soon exit the stage of human history? God said, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. And so he named him Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations, will come from you. And kings will descend from you. And I will give to you the land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac. And I will give the land to your future descendants. Now as good Bible readers, you're hearing God make statements like this and you're saying, that all sounds real familiar. I've heard that before. These are repeats of promises that God's consistently made throughout the entirety of the book of Genesis. I am your God. Specifically here, a personal God, God's covenantal name, the name that would define his relationship with Adam and then Abraham and all subsequents who are his. And then the statement, be fruitful and multiply. That phrase itself has reverberated since the garden. Adam placed in the garden and given the task with Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And here specifically to Jacob, that a nation will come from you. And that this nation will be established on a land. You read these promises and you think, yeah, that's exactly what God said to Abram way back in Genesis 12. A nation's going to coalesce around you, and I'm going to establish that nation on a land. From Genesis 1, developed more fully in the later chapters of Genesis, seen clearly in Genesis 12, and continuing through the covenant promises of Genesis 15 to 18, we're reminded that human history actually isn't the best description of the timeline. Better stated, this is a timeline of God's mission. God is the main character. The timeline, as it were, is his. He lives apart from it. He set it up. He defines it. And as a bookend to Jacob's journeys, he's reminding him of these, these promises that are far bigger than his individual life. Picture back in Genesis 28. This is actually Jacob leaving from fear of Esau. Jacob left and he went toward Haran and he reached a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place and he put it there at his head and he lay down on that place and he dreamed. The stairway was set with its ground and its top reaching to the sky and God's angels were going up and down on it and the Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out towards the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. 
I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So on the back, God bookends Jacob's life, or specifically this journey away from Esau and then coming back that's going to mark his death, with a reiteration of his covenant promises. A reminder of his mission in the world. Now, this is where the story intersects our story. Because if we were to build out this timeline of God's mission in the world, his overarching theme to save sinners and fix the world from the implications of sin, we would add our names to the timeline. Right? This timeline's not drawn to scale, by the way. All right? we, we would add our names to the, to the timeline. Somewhere subsequent to the life of Jacob, your name would appear, and so would mine. Now, certainly, we do not have the same position in redemptive history. God's doing something unique with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But our role within God's mission is very, very similar. Our role within God's ongoing mission is very, very similar. The implications of Adam's sin will affect us all. And yet, our place in God's story is what must frame our existence to live here in light of eternity. We need some hope if the reality of this detour from the highway of God's mission isn't going to be overwhelmingly crushing to us. Yesterday, during a commercial break in the Masters, I did my quick uh, weekend social media scan. And there I read the social media campaign, saw some uh, people posting pictures with the little placards that said, I am limitless. I think they had just run a race or done something, you know, physical, and they're standing, posing with their medal around their neck with a sign, I am limitless. So I thought, I'm reading this text and preparing for this morning's sermon, and I'm thinking, all right, that's, that's a super great thought. If that produces motivation to grow, Awesome. If it helps you develop more, the latent potential that's inside of you to maximize the life that God has given you, awesome. But there's a huge problem with that placard, isn't there? Like, it's just not true, right? We, just by virtue of being a created being, you are incredibly limited. It's not a cute Instagram post. But the I am limited placard seems to be the story that the Bible is telling. We are, by definition of our humanity, full of limits. We have mental limits. There is so much we don't know and can't understand. We have relational limits. We have emotional limits. We have physical limits. I don't think any of us in the room are hitting 150, all right? I don't care how much discipline you exercise in this life. We have physical, our bodies are going to wear out. It's just a matter of time. So what do I am limited kind of people do? I think Jacob cues us into this. I think he helps us see it. The solution, as it were, is to bend your life for whatever days your fleeting life has to live for the line. To bend your life back to God's greater redemptive story that started before you and will continue after you. That started before you and that he's going to continue 
writing after you. How do you do that? Two, two ways to live for the line. First, to pursue him. To pursue, to pursue him. So this kind of parenthetically is like, well, it, it, this is a relational exhortation for us. A relational challenge for us. This seems to be what Jacob is doing, beginning in verse 2. The family, everybody who's around, they get rid of their foreign gods, they purify themselves, they change their clothes, and then they go up in verse 3 and they build an altar there to God. Why? Because he answered me in the day of my distress. And then what a great statement here. He has been with me everywhere I've gone. Now certainly Jacob's life hasn't always been demonstrative of this. Like he hasn't always lived in submission and obedience. But he testifies here, I'm going to build an altar, I'm going to worship, I'm going to purify myself of these foreign gods because God has been faithful to me. We have this dual picture of repentance, putting away foreign gods, and a reorientation of the heart to proper worship. This is eerily akin to what Noah does when he comes off the ark. God establishes him back on the land, and what does he do? He builds an altar, and he worships. Worship is a transcendent way of orienting our hearts to something bigger than us. Now here, I certainly want, I think it's appropriate to think musical worship. There's something significant about that. You've been grabbed by a song, and your heart bent away from whatever was consuming you in that moment to a reminder of something more significant. Maybe another way you could think of it is acts of service. Have you ever just poured yourself out on behalf of somebody else and been lost in the process of self-giving that it reoriented your heart away from yourself and onto others and onto God's grand purposes in the world? Perhaps you've had this experience in a small group environment and personal prayer in your morning time with the Lord. There's something about pursuit of God in these altar moments that orients us to something that is more transcendent. Why? I think at minimum it's because worship is what we're going to be doing forever. So those of us who are in Christ, what's the arrow going to look like for us? Well, it's, it's going to be worship. So when we tap into that which we'll be doing forever, there's something incredibly freeing and fulfilling that comes from that. Hope giving. But also worship reorients our heart or better demonstrates that our heart is being reoriented by God and that we are in that moment rightly valuing what is of utmost importance, which by definition is things that we can't have on this earth. And it's interesting for me in Jacob's experience and in the story of the book of Genesis that this isn't a one-time process. Genesis 33, verse 20, he does there the very same thing here. He sets up an altar there and he called to God, to the God of Israel. So, you want hope and a limited life. Step number one is to consistently pursue him. Consistently orient your heart to worship. What do these altar moments look like for us, or when do they likely happen? One, 
I think in God's goodness and kindness to us, they often happen on the backside of disorienting life events. I think this is what we see throughout the narrative of the scriptures, that on the backside of something really radically disorienting happen, this postures our hearts to say, oh yeah, that reminded me that the things that were keeping me up at night actually didn't matter all that much. So here's what I want to encourage you, church. When those times come, as they come, don't let them be a blip on your radar and then re-engage in life as normal but see them as a gift of God's grace that's given to bend your heart to proper worship. This is a gift of God's kindness to us. Another place I think altar moments happen is that's why I think the corporate gathering of the saints is so important. I think this is meant to be a regularly recurring pattern that orients and bends our hearts to something that's transcendent. That's why casual church attendance on Sundays is just insufficient. Our hearts are too magnetized to the world to temporarily engage with the church when it's convenient to us. You just can't do it. So you got to consistently lean into the regular pattern of the corporate worship of the church. And then lastly, third point there, daily points of orientation. Daily points of meeting with God. I do think there's real significance to this being a physical act. He sets up an altar. There's something, there's something visual that's going on. I don't know what this altar looks like in your living room or your study or on your back porch. But having a significant place that you come back to that clues your heart into, oh yeah, God was with me everywhere I've gone. That's exactly what Jacob says. That calls us back, you know, I actually really do believe this stuff. This is really important. If we don't have that, we are way too forgetful to consistently bend our lives to the line. That's why we do things like spiritual formation surveys. That might seem super weird to you, but I understand my job in light of uh, Ephesians 4 to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which means my fundamental task is to equip God's people to worship him rightly throughout the week. It's not primarily simply what I do here on Sunday mornings for a little. So I want to equip you to meet with God. I want to equip you to engage with God. And I want to know how to do that better. Secondly, how do we live for the line would be to invest in his mission. Would be to invest in his mission. Notice what God says here in these middle verses in 10 through 12. He reminds him of the task. What's he to be doing in light of the fact that he's God? Jacob's to to just give himself to be fruitful and multiply. Notice there in verse 11, that's really the only statement there that's active. Where God's telling Jacob, here's the thing I want you to do. The other things, he's a passive recipient of. I'm God. I'm going to be God. You're going to be mine. I'm going to bring a nation from you. I'm going to put you on the land. I'm going to fulfill my... That's not asking Jacob to do anything. What's the, what's the press? Be fruitful and multiply. Now certainly here by the time we get to Genesis 35, more than biological multiplication is in, in view. Not less than that, but more than that. 
an entire nation, families will coalesce, God's people will come. And that Jacob is invested in the work of commending the person and power of God to others, especially to a coming generation. Again, the significance of this making an altar here. By virtue of this being a physical altar that's established, Jacob is saying, he's highlighting, hey, look. This isn't something I'm doing in private where nobody else can see, but I am publicly testifying to the covenant faithfulness of God, specifically to future generations. I think this is an incredibly appropriate place for us to make application of the famous passage from Matthew chapter 6. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the typical exhortation following that verse is don't spend money on yourselves, you need to tithe. And I think giving generously to the ways of God is an incredibly important, investing in his mission, is an incredibly important way of bending our hearts away from the treasures of this earth. But friends, so too is work invested in fruitful multiplication that commends God, his work, and his ways to a future generation. Notice the parallel, I'll quote from Psalm 103 here. This is exactly what follows the passage where he says you're like a flower in a field that's here and going to be gone. Verse 17, but from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is to those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all, here, all generations. The commending of the covenant promises of God from one generation to our grandchildren, God says this faithful love of God will stand. And so, friends, as we invest in the work of fruitful multiplication, We live for something that will extend beyond us. I believe it's right to make the connection that Jesus applies, Jesus builds on Genesis 12, the giving to Abraham of a multitude of people in his great commission, where he challenges all followers of Christ to go and make disciples because he is with us always that as we invest in that work, we leave a legacy in those whom we love, who we serve, with whom we bear burdens. We invest in the work from one generation to the next and live for the line until Jesus returns. Now here's an easy point of consideration for us. Easy way to assess how am I doing for some, living for something that will live on after me? To ask the question, how much time this week have you spent in these two practices? Worship 
and mission. How much time, how much of your thought, your affection, your heart's orientation has been bent toward something that will actually live on after you? If this time investment is low for me or for you, it should not surprise any of us. When our hearts get easily captivated by the shiny, glittery trinkets of this life, or when we get radically depressed and discouraged when we awaken to the fact that this life is incredibly fragile. The only, you're not going to change those realities. That's just the way this world works. So the only way to get out of that is to get your eyes up to something bigger than that. It's the only hope you got. You either cave in on yourself because it's fragile, or you live for something that's bigger than that. Of course, Jesus himself was exemplary in these dual practices. He loved God and loved people better than anyone who's ever walked this earth. He lived for the line perfectly and consistently. In fact, today is the day that we remember the scene when it appeared he was actually going to make the same detour that we all make. He entered Jerusalem on this great Palm Sunday with the hosannas ringing. While they proclaimed him as the exalted king, Jesus knew that he was soon going to die. And it would appear that on the timeline of human history, his name was going to follow in the same path of these greats of old. But what we celebrate seven days from now is that Jesus wasn't a blip on the radar screen of human history. He was the line. He defined the line. He was the means by which God was saving sinners and fixing the world. We celebrate because we have the one who is victorious over this fragile life and who has promised all of those who are in his line hope that extends beyond it. So may you this week orient your heart to his story, the way God was restoring all things to himself. And would you passionately and compellingly invite those who are living in this fragile world to give themselves in humble faith and repentance to something that's far greater. Let's pray together. Our Father, it, it would be fitting for us to, to admit that, uh, that we, we really don't like the vapor-like nature of this world. Uh, we, we really don't like how fragile this whole thing feels. Uh, we, we really wish that, that it wasn't so fleeting. And those, uh, those desires serve to, to, to orient us to, to how much we need your grace, 
how, how much we, 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 we want to, to grab hold of things that we see, that we can touch, that we can manufacture in our power. And, and we, we, just, we simply don't have the power to, to release our grip on those things apart from you. And so would you, in your kindness, remind us of this big overarching arrow that's like oriented in this world that started before us, extends after us. And would that, would that give us hope? Like would, would it awaken joy? And would it free us from just getting crushed under bad news and things that we can't hold on to? Would you make us worshipful missionaries who don't store up treasure on this earth but invest in treasure in heaven? Because we recognize that that's the only thing that's eternal. And something about these songs that we'll sing now is helpful in getting us up beyond our lives. So we ask that by your Spirit's power you would attune our hearts to worship and then send us out on mission. We ask for the fame of Jesus to be known far and wide. His name, amen.